0: Hello and welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything to get you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News in lovely Denver, Colorado, Jason Luber. And if you want to contact the show, here's the easiest way to do it. You have a phone number, 303-832-0217. You have the email, driving you crazy podcast at gmail.com. You have the Facebook, which is Jason Luber Traffic Guy. And you have Twitter, at Denver7Traffic. And I did just get a message yesterday. It's from D. Dillon from North Little Rock, Arkansas. And D. writes, did I order a treadmill bike from you a few months back? I've lost my order number and I haven't received it. <laughs> Not kidding. This is actually a message I got yesterday. So I wrote D back, and this is what I said. I said, well, D, thanks for writing. I don't know what to tell you about your missing treadmill bike. I'm not sure why you would think that you bought it one, bought one for me since that isn't what I do. I don't think I've ever owned a treadmill bike. I have a regular treadmill, and I have one of those elliptical thingies. And I'm, I'm happy you decided to start exercising, and good luck with the new Healthy You. <laughs> well, moments later, Dee wrote me back. She wrote me back right away. And she said she's actually seen ads for it, and it showed a picture uh, and my profile associated with ads for this treadmill bike. <laughs> and, and she said, search treadmill bike and, and see what you find. So so I did. So I searched for treadmill bike, and what came up with was a, a bunch of different um, information, you know, people posting about a treadmill bike, and then I saw a video that I posted to my Dr- Jason Luber Traffic Guy page on Facebook from two and a half years ago. <laughs> so talk about timely. Um, hope she hasn't been waiting for two and a half years for this thing, because, well... That's a long time. So two and a half years ago, I posted this video of this bike contraption. You know those little Razor scooters? Just imagine a Razor scooter, but it's a lot bigger. Where the tread part you stand on is actually a treadmill. And it has two wheels, and then it has the handle, and it has a little motor on it. And you walk on the treadmill, and it transfers power from the treadmill to the wheels. And so you're walking at, let's say like three miles an hour, pretty decent, just a mild, mild pace. Right. But you're actually going like 20 miles an hour. It looks pretty neat. It has a battery that helps you go fast. Um, They're, they're made by this Dutch company, but they have an office in Florida. Each one of these things, it sells for about $3,000. So I sent D the link to the company that sells it. And she said, "OMG, thank you so much. Sorry to bother you. I hope your holidays are wonderful." Well, there you go, another satisfied customer. <laughs> I, I was a little surprised when uh, Dee wrote me a wrote me a note about her missing treadmill bike. I'm I'm just glad I could I could help her out. Um, it's called a Lop, Lopifit L O P I F I T electric bike. Uh, you can look it up. It's it's a pretty neat deal. And if you want to look back. Two and a half years to my Facebook page. You can see it, see it there as well. Before we get into other transportation news, I uh, get emails like from D all the time, and, and I actually get different email pitches from places that are pitching me stories. Most of the time, it's uh, well outside of any transportation ideas. So I try to write these people back, and I say, look, that's, that's nice and all, but, but if you have transportation stories, send them my way. Otherwise, uh, anything you were sending me is outside my wheelhouse. So I, I got this pitch from the University of Colorado because they have these experts all the time that they're trying to send out there. And we've talked to an expert from the University of Colorado about concrete here on the show. Maybe I'll, I'll play that episode, replay it sometime soon. Because it was really fascinating about concrete. And how he was, uh, this engineer uh, over at the University of Colorado, was making a smarter, better, stronger concrete. Anyway, uh, so the University of Colorado sent me this pitch, and here was the headline. And this is why it, it caught me a little bit off guard. It said, nuclear war could take a big bite out of the world's seafood. <laughs> you don't say! A nuclear war would ruin my shrimp platter! <laughs> the old red lobster. (laughs) It says, a new study reveals the damage that a nuclear war might take on wild-caught seafood around the world from salmon and tuna to the shrimp in shrimp cocktails. (laughs) Call Las Vegas. They're going to be out of shrimp cocktails. Those, by the way, those little shrimp cocktails in Las Vegas are terrible. You think you're getting actually real shrimp? You are, I guess. But there's these tiny, tiny little shrimp. I mean, really, really tiny little shrimp, and they're not good. Not good at all. So if you're offered a free shrimp cocktail in one of the downtown Las Vegas casinos, don't take it. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) I thought that was rather... Look, if there's a nuclear war, the last thing I'm thinking about is shrimp cocktail. It would be full-on panic mode. No time for shrimp cocktail in my nuclear war world. Then the press release, it had this beauty. The group estimates that a nuclear war might cut the amount of seafood that fishing boats are capable of bringing in worldwide by as much as 30%. (laughs) I think it's going to reduce the number of people able to fish in a boat by about uh, 99%. (laughs) There's not going to be a whole lot of people out there fishing for shrimp cocktails when there's a nuclear war going on. That's going to be the last thing on anybody's mind. Some New Orleans, you know, Bayou shrimp fisherman out there trying to catch your shrimp. That's just not on the top of people's. There's nuclear war going on. Seriously, the panic it would be it would be total and utter panic. It would be survival of the fittest. It'd be more like a, it'd be more of a disaster then what, it would make COVID look like the Roaring Twenties, a nuclear war. Bad for shrimp cocktail. It's bad for a lot of things. All right, moving on. Believe it or not, there are some people who are working from home right now, and they're starting to miss their morning commutes. So much so, they've actually started fake commutes. And there are experts that are applauding that decision. There's actually one guy who appeared in a story about missing their commute who used to ride his bike to work every day now he gets up gets ready gets on his bike rides from home around this uh, around the neighborhood around a, a, a pre-planned route and that takes him all the way back to his house <laughs> so he feels like he went somewhere. He says, it's just forcing myself to get out of bed so I'm actually going outside, having a real start to my day like I used to instead of just rolling out of bed to my laptop and starting the work day without having any real distance between my personal life and work. You know, that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. You might be surprised... How many people really miss their... I actually missed my commute. I, 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 it was great when I was working from home because now I'm back in the uh, uh, at the TV station downtown. And so I actually have a commute once again. Not much of a commute because, just like I did before, I, I'm leaving for work at 3 o'clock in the morning. So there's really not much of a commute I have to deal with. But I, I still have to actually leave the house, go to a place, and then come back. Not just walk down the stairs to the basement. But there are a lot of people that are signing on board for these fake commutes. There's this professor at Harvard University. His name is Jan Yahimovich, And he says there is tension that we're experiencing right now where we are actually beginning to understand that even though we hate the commute in yesteryear time, when we were actually going to the office, there was actually something valuable about it. And I agree. The professor recently published research showing one of the biggest benefits was the time the commute gave us to transition between our personal life and our work life. Also, that the transition period in this new normal can effectively be replicated with a fake commute or a new before and after work ritual. I don't think it actually matters what exactly it is, he says. It can be something as easy as putting on work clothes. (laughs) Now, companies are even starting to see the need for this. Microsoft recently announced it's adding a virtual commute feature to its Teams platform to help workers transition in and out of work mode. Although the company has not fully outlined what that will actually look like, that's an interesting idea from Microsoft. You know, you know, I, I tell my kids this time, this all the time. You can't just go to your online school in your pajamas. You need to get dressed. You need to brush your hair. You need to pretend like you're actually going to the classroom because that is, in essence, really what you're doing. So why don't you get up like you usually do for school and do all the regular things, and instead of driving you to the building, you're just walking over to the computer to do the online work. You should be ready to go just like if you were going to go to school. I feel like I have to... Take a shower before I do just about anything to, to get going in the morning. It's part of my routine, and, and I think that's what the commute was for most people. Just it's really part of their their routine, transitioning from home life to work life. When when I was on the radio all the time, I was flying in the helicopter doing the traffic reports. Right, I, I would hear from people after I was off for a couple of days or on a vacation. And it, they would tell me that it actually messed up their routine when they didn't hear me because it, it, the, the fill in was different. It was different than they're used to hearing on the radio and, and it messed them up a little bit. I, I understand that. It's, it's the same when I listen to the radio and, and I don't hear the specific hosts I used to like, whether it was uh, Paul Harvey or Art Bell or, well, not no, look, I'm, I'm going way back with radio with those names, right? But it's, I think it's the same way. So it takes you out of your routine. Hmm. Anyway. All right. There was a United Airlines flight from Jacksonville to Houston, and they had to land early in Mobile, Alabama. They needed to drop off 25-year-old Sierra Nicole McClinton. Sierra allegedly was a bit drunk when she got on the plane, and as she was sitting in her seat, she wasn't feeling so great, and she puked all over herself. (laughs) and and obviously not wanting to sit and puke, naturally she took off her pants, sat there in her underwear. Well, the passengers around her weren't happy about that either, and one woman was so angry that she started fighting with Sierra, and that's when a flight attendant got involved, and Sierra took a swing at her too. So another passenger helped to restrain the pantsless drunk woman, and once on the ground, police say the, that they had to get the woman off the plane, and she was wearing only a t-shirt and underwear. They did give her a blanket to cover up later on in the terminal area. And they also indicated that the woman was definitely intoxicated. And that she refused to obey officers' commands. <laughs> Sierra now faces charges of disorderly conduct and public intoxication. And then the flight to Houston continued on its de- to its destination without any further incident. Yeah, pantsless at 30,000 feet. Did you see the latest test of the Hyperloop? Virgin Hyperloop recently sent their first ever human passengers for a ride at their test site in Nevada. Sure, it's only about a third of a mile, but the vehicle was able to accelerate to 107 miles an hour with those two people inside. They've already run over 400 empty tests at that site in Las Vegas, and needless to say, this pace is far from the ultimate goal of going 600 miles an hour with 28 people inside, but it's a step in the right direction. And while the test appears to have gone uh, as expected, seemed to go normally, it's worth noting that there are many more steps to take before they can really commercialize this very ambitious transportation idea, because before connecting to the major cities through the Hyperloop network... They need to raise a whole lot of money. They're saying somewhere like a half a billion dollars or maybe even a billion dollars to establish a couple of test facilities around the country. They want to do one in West Virginia out to the East Coast where they can do a longer run, like six miles. And then they're hoping to get it certified in the next, what, three or four or five years and, you know, historically, America really isn't big on passenger trains, but I think the Hyperloop would be different because a trip from, let's say, Los Angeles to San Francisco would be just about 30 to 45 minutes, and that would be pretty cool. You could go to Las Vegas in just a half an hour. You can get uh, really across the country qu- really quickly. Um, and so I, I, and I really think, as I, as I said on this show earlier, that I really think, that the breakthrough for the Hyperloop will be in transporting things, not just people, but transporting things from place to place. Things that are now shipped by air or truck. And uh, it will revolutionize the way we can move things across the country from manufacturing sites to distribution centers. And uh, I, I think they're, they're actually going to set up a, a, a network of hubs, the old hub and spoke deal, where they have these hubs where the Hyperloop or, or is going from place to place and then distributing it to these hubs. And then from there, it goes via truck to uh, a local and more of a local distribution or regional distribution. Uh, and you'd be here in just a couple of hours instead of days. It, it really, I think, in that way would be revolutionary. And speaking of the Hyperloop, last year I had the opportunity to talk about all things Hyperloop. And it was really fascinating because there was a Hyperloop conference going on here in Colorado, in Golden, Colorado, near the west side of Denver. And I was able to talk to Dave Klute. And Dave is the president of the Hyperloop Advanced Partnership. And it was really interesting to learn about Hyperloop and where it could take us. I want to revisit that interview for us right now. Well, I'm excited to get into this next topic. We have talked many times here on the show about the advancement of the Hyperloop, and we wanted to explore more about it. And I think it's really going to transform the way we ship goods across the country, even more so than just moving people quickly from place to place. It really could be one of the most revolutionary pieces of technology created to this date. And to talk all about Hyperloop, I've invited Dave Clute. He is the president of the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership to be here on the show. Dave, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: All right, Dave. So before we look at exactly how the Hyperloop operates and all the challenges it faces, we'll get into that in a little bit. Let's get to know Dave a little bit. How did you get interested in the Hyperloop and what is HARP all about?
1: Well, I will do my best to give you the short version. Uh, I'm a Denver native. uh, My wife and I were both born in Denver and uh, I Grew up there, went to school, local schools, University of Colorado Boulder in the engineering program, and started out my career as an architectural engineer back in the 80s. And so we, we've seen lots of cycles in Denver, uh, oil and gas, communications, telecommunications, energy, solar. And throughout my career, I've always been interested in anything to do with architecture, engineering, transportation, economic development, because it's all connected. And we've seen the growth of the Front Range of Colorado from if you go up north, even as far as Cheyenne, and then you go south you know, through Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo. Technically, this whole area is known as the Rocky Mountain Front Range Mega Region, which technically goes down to Albuquerque. And you know better than I all the challenges we have with transportation up and down the Front Range. Uh, And we're constrained to the west but we've got lots of open land to the north the east and the south and uh so throughout my career i was interested in this and an opportunity came up in 2016 of march of 2016 to learn more about this and it's because i worked for cisco systems for 10 years and the gentleman that everyone thought was going to be the next CEO of Cisco left Cisco and became the first CEO of Hyperloop one in 2016. And this all of the buzz about this Hyperloop business really started in 2013 when Elon Musk published the white paper called Hyperloop alpha. Now I think a lot of people know who Elon Musk is and People said, "Well, aren't you kind of busy with Tesla and SpaceX?" And he said, "Yes." So I'm going to open source all of this information and invite people to enter a competition about making this a real thing. And so, you know, in the beginning, these things get overhyped, and and lots of misconceptions are created. But what happened is that uh, Hyperloop One became Virgin Hyperloop One and it's Virgin uh, Airlines. It's Richard Branson invested and it became Virgin Hyperloop One. They launched the global challenge, which is similar to what is known as the X Prize. The X Prize was that competition for private space travel. And so they, they created this global challenge in May of 2016. I was working full-time for Zurich Insurance in their corporate real estate department. And this, for me, started as just kind of a a hobby, really. But sometimes hobbies turn into something more. And so myself, along with another local entrepreneur named John Whitcomb, he and I got interested in this. And we flew out to Nevada to see firsthand in the desert, north of Las Vegas, what was being created then known as the Hyperloop-1 DEV loop, D-E-V-L-O-P, DEV loop. Well, to test out the theory that, that Elon Musk had, and he described the Hyperloop as being a cross between air hockey, the Concorde jet, and a railgun. So that's kind of a strange combination. But what it really means is that There's a lot of people now that are either developing full-scale prototypes and test tracks, which it's basically a tube. Imagine a water pipe, 15 feet in diameter, and they're all connected together. And then you take the air out of the tube, You, you you evacuate the tube so that it's a near vacuum, not a complete vacuum. But the whole idea is you want a near vacuum and inside the tube, you put a magnetic levitation rail system so that the capsules or the pods, which are the size of a cargo container or a school bus are propelled through this near vacuum at high speeds. In fact, it's it's theorized, it's, we haven't got there yet, but it's theorized that the physics and the science behind it, there's no reason that these capsules or pods can't go the speed of sound. So imagine getting in this tube and a human getting into a tube, it's gonna feel like a first class airline seat when you get in. And it, it won't take off like a rocket, it'll start slow. And it's, it uses a similar technology to maglev rail lines. Technically it's, it's referred to as a linear induction motor electrically powered by renewable energy, solar or wind, but it's a renewable energy source. And there's lots of very compelling reasons why this this technology, this crazy idea can and will work. And so the first successful test of this technology was the open air propulsion system test in the desert by Hyperloop One. And I love the name they used of the test rig, it's called Blade Runner. Because it was an open air track and they were just testing the propulsion system and it was wildly successful it it got launched from a standstill this little test rig called blade runner they launched it it went from zero to i don't remember the exact number i'd have to look up it was like 200 miles an hour in literally three to four seconds the problem is when you do something like that it also has to stop so braking is important
0: Yeah, most people want to stop slowly, not quickly.
1: Exactly. And so what you do is you reverse the propulsion mechanism and you slow it down by reversing the induction motor. It becomes a braking system. But what happens is when it gets going, the propulsion system actually levitates so that there's no friction between the bottom of the tube or the rail and magnetic levitation. You're actually riding on magnetic air bearings and that's similar to high-speed rail and maglev trains that are pretty common now in europe and japan in fact maglev high-speed train travel is also improving dramatically and quickly and a lot of folks say well we don't need hyperloop because we're going to have maglev rail lines well we've learned that this is not as much an engineering challenge as a social, economic, and environmental challenge. The engineering problems are being solved pretty quickly, and they're being tested, prototyped, and proven by companies like Hyperloop One out in the desert of Las Vegas on the dev loop. Um, Another global company, very different business model, known as the Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, or HTT. And this is a global company that was founded with a completely different business model. Hyperloop One was founded as a uh, West Coast, Las Vegas-based startup for-profit company. And, and it's, it's doing very well. And they're growing, they're, they're hitting their milestones in terms of testing and, and, and proving out the theory htt took a a very different approach and said we're going to gather people from around the world and give them the opportunity to invent the future and they will be invested and rewarded and compensated by stock in a company that when it becomes a viable funded technology the founders and, and early adopters and inventors will benefit from that from the risk that they're taking now as inventors. So there's lots of other companies in the mix. Those are the two that are often talked about, but there's also uh, TransPod Canada. There's uh, other companies throughout North America. So we got very excited about this. Well, in May of 2016, they launched this global challenge. The Rocky Mountain Hyperloop Consortium team expanded to 30 people, and we included architects, engineers, planners, data scientists, academics. And one of our founding partners is Dr. Rick Geddes. He runs the Cornell Program for Policy and Infrastructure at, uh, back in New York. And he is, he's incredible when it comes to helping us understand the economics of this whole model, because it doesn't work without funding and financing. And so he helped us develop the economic model. It, it was successful to the point that out of 2,600 entries from 40 countries around the globe, we made the semifinals. We, we were part of the 35 global semifinalists. We made the shortlist of 16 teams in North America. And in April, 2017, we presented at the Vision for America Conference sponsored by Virgin Hyperloop One. And I think at the time Virgin hadn't bought in yet. I think it was still Hyperloop One. I'd have to check the timing. But long story short, the other team from Colorado is the Rocky Mountain Hyperloop team. And that was formed by CDOT, Colorado Department of Transportation, in partnership with a global architectural engineering firm known as AECOM. And uh, they were successful to the point that they became one of the 10 finalists in North America. And the finalists were given the opportunity to work with Hyperloop One, and they went on to develop a feasibility study. And it's it's an incredible sign that this whole movement of high-speed transportation as a viable fifth form of transportation beyond cars and trucks, rails, airplanes, aviation, and boats. Uh, There's a lot of us believe that the Hyperloop and the subsequent networking of these Hyperloop tubes will create a
0: viable fifth form of
1: transportation.
0: I'm speaking with Dave Clute, the president of Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership about the Hyperloop in an upcoming conference in Golden. Uh, Dave, do you see this Hyperloop used as more useful to move people or to move stuff?
1: There is a compelling business case for both. And when we entered the competition, we said, well, what's the strongest business case for where this thing should be built, the first loop? Because you have to do, you can't do it all at once. you got to start small. And it's partly because the gr- this group that came together said, we're going to have the best chance to prove this out where there's wide open space flat land and few environmental barriers, and we need right-of-way. So the, the funding, the people, the, the populations that need this kind of transportation are on both coasts, the west coast, the east coast. I mean, if you, if you look at the Amtrak corridors between you know, Baltimore and Washington, up and down the northeast corridor, it's very difficult to add any type of new right-of-way of any kind on either coast. But what if you connected an intermodal terminal where there's 110 cargo trains moving every day east-west? Well, guess where that is?
0: Cheyenne, Wyoming. (laughs) There's a lot of space in Cheyenne.
1: There's a lot of space and a ton of cargo moving across the country between Chicago and Sacramento and Los Angeles. And so as part of this, we had to learn a lot about what are the existing paths of travel, of moving people and cargo across North America. And we said, well, it becomes pretty obvious when you start to look at existing rail lines and highway systems and the 11 mega regions in North America. Now, the mega regions, a lot of people are starting to realize that in the very near future, the majority of the Earth's population will be living in densely populated urban areas, cities. And we just recently, just I think it was maybe 2010, we crossed that 50% line where the world's population now, 50% of the world's population live in densely populated cities. So it's very important that we understand and recognize how important city planning and urban growth is going to be to our future and survival as a species. and. Uh, one of the most recent National Geographic's, April 2019, is dedicated, there's a special issue, just to cities. And transportation is a major challenge. And what what we thought is, you really don't need to go the speed of sound from Denver to Fort Collins or Denver to Colorado Springs. I'd like to. It'd be fun. But you don't need to. Uh, you really need high speed transportation between mega regions so i'm really i'm i've placed a bet with a lot of people i know and work with that by the time i am 70 so i'm i'm a, i just turned 61 and i I'll, I'll place a bet i'll go on record of saying i'm going to be able to get on a hyperloop network near DIA and travel to Chicago for a lunch meeting, downtown Chicago. And so I'll get on first thing in the morning, and I won't worry about TSA or airport traffic or parking. I would hope that you
0: would have some kind of security to go through.
1: Well, there will be security, but it'll be the second or third generation of TSA, and it's going to be a lot easier. Maybe by then it'll be automated. It'll be uh, androids and robots that look like humans, but there'll be androids that say, you know, they greet you and it'll be automated because the way I'll get there is by dialing up an autonomous vehicle on my smartphone, the autonomous vehicle will pick me up at my front door. It will take me to the Hyperloop terminal and that same vehicle may actually just kind of find its way into the Hyperloop capsule and it'll be seamless. Or maybe I'll get out of the autonomous vehicle and, you know, step through the lounge and grab a cup of coffee and find my first class Hyperloop comfortable seat. And then I will depart the DIA Hyperloop terminal and I'll be in Chicago in time for my 10 a.m. meeting, downtown Chicago, because I'll I'll end up at the Hyperloop terminal at at O'Hare and I'll go from O'Hare to downtown in about four minutes. I'll have my meeting downtown Chicago, finish up lunch around mm, one o'clock, find my way back to the terminal in downtown Chicago, and I'll be back home before dinner.
0: It doesn't seem that it can be that, not not that the, the, the technology can get you from place to place quickly, but it doesn't seem that in nine years, that will be a reality the way we are looking at Because we, we don't even have any operating tubes right now. That's correct. But uh, I'm going out
1: on a limb here and painting a vision that may or may not happen. If it doesn't happen between Denver and Chicago, it could happen between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, or it could happen between St. Louis and Cleveland. Actually, that, that's a, probably a safer bet as the, the route in the Midwest, using the existing I-70 corridors that are flat and straight, because that's what you need. You need existing right that are open, flat. Because if you're going the speed of sound, it's kind of hard to turn. You need very large turning radii and flat land. There's a lot of open land between Denver Chicago. Uh, have you ever driven through Kansas?
0: Yeah, oh well, yeah. Uh, recently, yes, I have. And there is a lot of open land. But that, but that's going to be one of the major also issues here is land acquisition. So it, I would think that's going to be one of the major hurdles is, one, acquiring land because, the, as I understand it right now, it goes above ground. But can it also go underground?
1: It can go. And that's the preferred method. That's the least expensive mode is above ground on elevated piers because if you're a rancher or a landowner operator, and if the tubes are elevated and you've got cattle or livestock, it could be closed range, open range, the cattle don't much care what's you know 30 feet above them. It's kind of like, now there is a lot of controversy around wind towers, but I, I see a lot of wind towers and wind farms coexisting quite well with oil and gas fields, cattle ranges, open livestock. And so it's a compatible use, but granted you still have right-of-way issues, but the right-of-way issues are gonna be discussed at our conference because the theme of this year's conference is all about right-of-ways, civil engineering, technical challenges, energy challenges, and a big emphasis on safety and security because this creates a whole new target a whole new opportunity for terrorists and, and people that want to do damage to public infrastructure. So we're, and this this is actually a pretty good segue to talk about HARP. When we didn't make the cut uh, to the finalists, when I say we, it's the 30 people that were working on the Rocky Mountain Hyperloop Consortium, we said, wow, we, we never expected to even make it that far. We went from, I mean, if you do, do the math, um, were like a rounding error out of 2,600 entries. And these were all volunteers. These, this was all done volunteer time. We all had day jobs. But it was fun because it was short, short-lived. It was May to October 2016. They didn't announce the semifinalists until 2017. then they had the vision for American April. And we said, wow, that was interesting. But what do we do now? And so we split into two groups, one group formed a new company and this is John Whitcomb and Rebecca Leonard and and John can talk to you about the hypernet holding corporation that's the for-profit entity that is focusing on ways to create a business model that makes this not only real but sustainable and energy efficient but we also saw a need for kind of a research and development arm and that's where the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership came from as a non entity focused on becoming the hub of information for knowledge, research, applied research, academic research, peer-reviewed research and development as a neutral third-party trusted advisor to represent the good, the bad, and the ugly about should this thing even exist? I mean, is it, is it so crazy that we shouldn't even pursue it? Well, there's a lot of people now, and and a lot of them will be at the conference, including uh, Mr. Ariel Wolf, who is uh, representing the Department of Transportation. He was appointed to the uh, Technology Council, recently chartered by the U.S. Department of Transportation under Elizabeth Chow. So Ariel is one of our keynotes. He will be talking about what the DOT has been doing in the last months and reaching back a couple of years about the Hyperloop, which is analogous to what happened in the fifties with the interstate highway system. A lot of people don't realize that the interstate highway system connecting our major cities in the fifties and sixties mm-hmm. was driven by the need to transport material cargo and people, machines and equipment, and the right-of-ways, the interstate highway system, like I-25 is a perfect example. I never knew it until I learned, as part of the global challenge, that the, the right-of-way for our I-25 corridor is 300 feet. That's the width of a football field. You can land a B-25 in a 300-foot right-of-way if you need to. And So the whole interstate highway system was designed and developed and paid for by the Department of Defense. but it became a very useful way to connect our cities so that we could drive from Denver to Chicago or LA or Houston in a reasonable amount of time. So the hypernet network is the interstate highway system, 21st century version, but using a different mode of transport guideways that are either elevated, suspended, underground, above ground, below ground, they can go through uh oceans and with the new tunneling technologies that are coming from companies like the boring company instead of worrying about going over or under mountains lakes or rivers or oceans just go straight because it's really important to keep the tubes straight level and flexible because you have to accommodate thermal and seismic movements that's one of the engineering challenges but if you just go straight, you can, you can go through the mountains, where you can go you know, across oceans, waterways. Now, I don't want to oversimplify it to the point that it sounds trivial, because it's not. Uh, we estimate the cost right now of constructing the Hyperloop system to be about $200 million per mile. That's a lot.
0: That's a ton. I'm speaking with Dave Clute. He's the president of the Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership. About the Hyperloop and the upcoming conference talking about Hyperloop, it's going to be in Golden on July 8th and 9th. I want to get back, Dave, to the logistics of the actual tube and how the environment will affect it. You mentioned there is a lot of land around Cheyenne and out here in the Great Plains. But what about real life, real physical challenges of the tube sitting in an open field in Nebraska <laughs> on that line from Chicago to Denver during the heat of the summer or the cold of the winter? We know what the, we, we know what weather can do to our cars and and other mechanical uh, uh, operations. What what does that extreme do to the Hyperloop? Great, great questions. And
1: I'll give you the short answer, but I invite you and your listeners to attend the conference specifically session four that talks about the physics of the hyperloop, the technical challenges and solutions that deal with thermal movement, seismic movement, because you have to be able to move in multiple dimensions up and down, sideways, back and forth, because here's a great example. When they built the St. Louis arch, they, they had to worry about, Half of the arch expanding in the sun, because the sun was coming up on the east side. And the east side of the arch, when they're building it, actually expanded quite a lot. And so thermal movement is a big issue for metal tubes as well. And so that's the whole reason for Hyperloop One building the test track in the desert of Nevada, which can get pretty hot. And at nighttime, it gets kind of chilly in the desert.
0: But it doesn't get to 30 degrees below zero.
1: Correct. So we're going to need new materials. We, we can't do it with steel water pipe. I mean, the, the, the test loop is built from that just so we can prove out the theory, but this is going to create opportunities for new materials science. And that's why we need our students starting as young as kindergarten, elementary school, junior high and high school, getting involved. It's going to create opportunities for new material science because it's The the logical answer to that question is it has to be a new type of material that can be easily manufactured, deployed, installed, operated, and maintained. And I don't have the answer yet, but I think, based on what I've learned, it's going to be a composite material made of metal and carbon fiber. Their capsule is made of a new material that is a... Carbon fiber material that's lightweight, that's what they make Formula One race cars out of. So the capsules are going to be carbon fiber. The tubes are going to have to be a composite material that can be quickly and easily produced. So the tubes themselves, the quick answer is going to be new material, probably a metal carbon fiber
0: composite. There are a lot of other challenges with new materials and with the logistics of putting this out somewhere, because what if there's a leak uh, in one of the tubes? It's not a pure vacuum, as you said, but it is going to be a near vacuum, so any leak is going to be sucking a lot of air in there, and that's going to cause a weak area in uh, the tube somewhere. I would imagine that every square mile of this tube is going to have to be at least inspected all the time, and it's going to take a lot of manpower, or at least machine power, if you have some kind of remote drone doing doing the inspections to to make sure that it's safe,
1: absolutely great question. I mean, how could one of those holes appear? Say, a rocket-propelled grenade, perhaps,
0: or a tornado throwing uh, a rock at it? Yeah, no, that's
1: that's that's a great question. And and the type of information and and scenarios, you know, worst-case scenarios that will be envisioned and discussed in session two. Safety and security, it cuts both ways. So we've got subject matter experts, scientists, that are going to try to think of worst case scenarios of what's the threat, what, what are the all different types of you know, uh, man-made threats, natural threats. And do you, do you remember that commercial back from the 70s and 80s? I think it was about margarine and and mother nature came on <laughs> and she said it's not nice to mess with mother nature well we've seen firsthand the damage that can be caused with tornadoes and hailstorms i mean I, I live here in carl springs in hail alley and you know what kind of damage can natural disasters cause and the answer is tremendous damage so the engineering solution has to be figured out how can this thing survive a tornado, or a tsunami, or hailstorm, or you know, God forbid, man-made weapons and threats,
0: or or even just a couple of kids spray painting this the structure, you know that uh, that the uh, tube is being held on. So it exactly. could be something yep, yep. as minuscule as that, but yep. you also have people that are messing around with it that you don't want around that type of equipment.
1: Exactly. So. We're, we're in the early days of all this you uh, know if I, I I've got this diagram that shows I call it the hyperloop future development context model and it, it starts in 2016 and I, I projected out for 20 years to say well what what could this thing look like by 2036? and uh, it's it's interesting to kind of think through these scenarios and you know what does the future look like in the design of infrastructure, of of civil engineering systems, of elevated guideways and tubes or tunnels. And I just think we're in an incredibly exciting time where these problems and challenges are being described. and, And even, I mean, four years ago, we didn't even know that this could be a problem. So really great questions. And the whole purpose of HARP is to try to Ask the right question because oftentimes the answers don't come unless you can even formulate the question.
0: Because we are really at the beginning, as you said, of this process. And I did take a look at that future development context model that you created, and it looks like it starts off as, you know, let's say a hyperloop tube at the very beginning here in phase one, and it goes out to at least right now phase five, many many years down the road. And you have all these arrows, if you will, or or these. Uh, almost wispy tubes that are going out from the one with all the different contextual, the, the, all the problems that might come ar- around the different questions around who's going to finance it and how's it going to operate? How much is it going to cost? And how, how are people logistically going to get on this thing and go to Chicago and all these different aspects of it as it travels from where it is now, maybe 20 or 30 years down the road.
1: Yep, exactly. So I, I just think that we, Specifically in Denver, Colorado, in the heart of the Front Range, in the heartland of America. I think we're really well positioned to address this issue. And uh, we've had conversations with our state, local, and government leaders who are interested and excited and intrigued by this whole thing. Um, But it's an opportunity.
0: What have been some of these political challenges that you have come across so far?
1: Well, the main thing is um creating a business model an economic model that could help address this and we think the only way it's going to work is a public private partnership it's going to take public money it's going to take private money now the the example of hyperloop one it's it's all privately funded startup money funded by silicon valley investors but they could profit greatly if it works I mean how have people done that help create the internet i i wish i had some of that facebook stock <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of other options and ideas but um i think and these this diagram these these ribbons of of work streams and ideas i'll, I'll just pick one let's pick one of those work streams uh, automobiles that's a good one um electric cars trucks autonomous vehicles I think electric cars are incredibly interesting and and it's spawned a whole new sector of the industry but there's a book out there called two billion cars because pretty soon we're gonna have two billion cars on the planet and while the book talks about vehicle transportation the real premise of the book is the shift from a carbon-based economy to a hydrogen-powered economy and I think that's the end game I think electrical power you still need right now you still need a power plant to produce the electricity to charge up the batteries in the cars and trucks now we're seeing changes in power plants quickly we're going from coal to gas we're going to renewables it was pretty exciting this year to hear that for the first time in history renewable energy for a brief time surpassed coal as the main power source then you look at the future of railroads and high speed rail. And another very relevant example is right again in Denver. Boom, supersonic, the successor to the Concorde jet.
0: So We've so- talked about that here on the yeah. show already.
1: Yeah, very exciting. I, I, I'm looking forward, you know, before I get on the Hyperloop to Chicago, I'm looking forward to going supersonic and flying. We'll have to go from a coastal city initially because you've got the sonic boom problem.
0: And you also I, have re- well that and you have regulations preventing any supersonic yeah. flight across the continental U- U.S. right but now. But I,
1: if I could, I'd buy a ticket today to go from San Francisco to Sydney, supersonic. And I'm looking forward to booking that flight either on Virgin or Japan
0: Airlines in the next three to five years. So how much money do you think is going to be poured into this Hyperloop? You mentioned some of the investors there in Silicon Valley. How much do you think is going to be poured in here? How much should be spent to make this a reality?
1: Well, I've I've got some statistics on that. Um, Right now, the Hyperloop technology market is estimated to be about $1.4 billion in 2022. Uh, The projections are a compound annual growth rate that by 2026, it'll be a $6.3 billion market. Now, if if you do the math, $200 million a mile, you're not gonna be able to build that route from Denver to Chicago if the unit cost is that high. We, there's nothing we can do unless Warren Buffett decides to put all his money into the hydro, which won't happen. But uh, it's it's gonna take, proof points along the way and that unit cost is gonna have to come way down. We we simply can't afford $200 dollars a mile. So it's gonna have to get to the point where we do proof of concepts. And and maybe we start out in Colorado and we go from DIA to Greeley, as suggested by Rocky Mountain Hyperloop. Yeah, because so many
0: people want to go to Greeley.
1: Well the reason (laughs) Greeley the reason I mentioned Greeley is it's flat, it's open. Uh, I think it's about 40 miles.
0: And everybody wants to leave.
1: Well, <laughs> you want to prove a concept that will prove out the idea so everybody can build the next loop that goes from DIA to Vail so we can, so we can do day skiing again. I, I don't do day trips anymore because I, I, can't, I can't get there in time. I used to be a day skier growing up, and you'd get from my house in Denver, and I'd be on the slopes by 8 o'clock can't do that anymore
0: but how do you come over overcome those terrain challenges of of the rockies and you keep saying we need something that is straight and flat well the country isn't just straight and it's not just flat and we need to get from place to place so those terrain challenges seem like it's also a pretty big issue
1: well i'm going to defer to mr musk to help figure that one out with the boring company we'll go through the mountains with the boring company solutions and by the way, I, I don't have any stock in any of these companies.
0: <laughs> so who are some of the big investors behind it? Does Elon Musk have any money that you, you mentioned, Richard Branson? So who are some of the big investors here that are putting their money in the Hyperloop?
1: Well, Elon Musk did a smart thing. He, he's leveraging SpaceX, and he's focusing not on the tubes or the transport infrastructure. He's focusing on the capsules themselves. And there's a whole bunch of universities globally that are participating in a SpaceX pod competition, including three from Colorado. Uh, the Digger Loop uh, sc- School Mines, the Hyper Falcos team in Colorado Springs. And then you just look at all the companies at the university R&D level that are being looked at. And they're raising money on their own, but they have corporate sponsors. And these are big names if, if you just Go to the website about the SpaceX pod competition, and you look at the decals that go on the, the test capsules developed by the university teams. And it's it's really a you know a litany of large corporate partners that help help these university teams build the pods. But um, you know, the big names that you hear about, of course, are you know Elon you know, Musk, Richard Branson. And lots of private investors from the Middle East. The the Dubai Port Authority is now one of the major investors in Hyperloop One. So uh, there's a lot of public money in Europe. Uh, Swiss Metro is another great example. They've been working on this since the 70s. And one of the other solutions is uh, governments providing the majority of the funding, particularly in Europe and India and China. I think we'll probably see this happen in India or China before the United States, but I would love to see it happen here, stateside in continental US before India or China. But frankly, I don't care because we're one planet and in the big scheme of things, we have to solve this problem because we can't sustain 9 billion people in 2050 with what we're using.
0: Well, I'm speaking with Dave Clute, the president of Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership, about the Hyperloop and about the upcoming conference here in Golden, July eighth and 9th, And talking about the conference, Dave, the Harp Conference, it's going to uh, be open to the public, yes or no? Absolutely, um,
1: it's uh, open to public. Now it's I've got a countdown clock on my computer, and we're only uh, 17 days away. But there's still time to register. Uh, Any charge for people to go? Ah, uh, there is a charge, but it, it's nominal. I mean, for a conference of this type, normally I'm used to going to industry conferences where you pay you know a thousand, two thousand dollars per head for this one. But uh, we've got individual registrations available for a two-day conference with world class speakers from around the globe for one hundred and fifty five dollars per person. And that includes uh, you know breakfast and lunch at the Colorado School of Mines uh, Student Center Ballroom. So uh, I I think it's an incredibly cost effective investment to get this type of content, these panelists and these speakers for two day conference. And besides that, it's gonna be a lot of fun because we're gonna kick it off Sunday night and whoever shows up, uh, you have to to pay for your own beer and drink, (laughs) but it's gonna be at the uh, Trailhead Tap House to kick this thing off. And I think Colorado is pretty well known for its uh, (laughs) production of beer products
0: oh there you go perfect yeah well if a friend of mine who used to be a, a newscast director here was crazy about this one beer that she could only get in green bay so she could leave on the hyperloop uh in and and get there to green bay in a cu- a couple hours and back and then bring her cases of of her favorite beer <sighs> that way right
1: well i would have to check the map i don't think we go to green bay yet but <laughs>
0: Well, well you really done. don't go anywhere yet, except in, in between Desert A and Desert B. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you hope that is going to come out of the conference? What do you think are going to be some of the big points? What are you going to do with that information that comes out of this conference?
1: Uh, this is the second annual conference of this type, and last year we did it in L.A., and the, the outcome, the, uh, the, the work products of this conference was greater awareness, And white papers, these are technical white papers by scientific experts, but this year's conference is much more commercial and enterprise focused. And what we really hope happens is that the group of people, that get together over these two days. And the thing I like about it, it's not gonna be a huge conference like, you know, like you see in Las Vegas, Uh, it's, it's open to the public, but it's intended to be a group of 50 or 70 or 100 people that have a meaningful dialogue about the risks, the issues, the realities of, is is this thing even, I mean, are we just crazy nuts to even think about it? Or are there real solutions to these engineering, social, economic, and environmental problems that can be solved in our lifetime so that you and I can do that lunch in Chicago and get Back home in time for dinner because uh, I think it will happen we don't know when or where exactly um, and you notice I didn't say how big a bet it is uh, <laughs> right. let's call it
0: a ten dollar bet I'll bet you ten bucks yeah you didn't <sighs> bet me a ham sandwich or, or a steak dinner from Ruth's Chris so if I <laughs> finally Dave how maybe in just a few words how do you see uh, the Hyperloop changing the world
1: Well, we think it's an opportunity to help many industries test out what's going to be needed in many industries. I I think it could be a way to spawn new technologies and new solutions, much the way that the space program has spawned new technologies and systems in multiple industries. Architecture, engineering, planning, urban design, transportation, uh, logistics, mechanical, electrical engineering, I mean, every aspect of this challenge requires new solutions in every field
0: and drink in in the form of tang
1: i remember tang (laughs) but they're all connected you're going to need to be able to go from mega region to mega region on a hyperloop tube and then get on a virgin galactic or a blue origin uh spacecraft and and achieve low earth orbit also in my lifetime there you go at a reasonable cost
0: (laughs) That, yeah, at a reasonable cost. I think that's yeah. what it comes down to. Yep. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being here. Dave Clute, the president of Hyperloop Advanced Research Partnership. Thank you, Jason. Bye. There you go. Now you know all again about the Hyperloop. I really think it's going to be fascinating to uh, jump on the Hyperloop. I don't know if I want to be the first one, kind of like the vaccine that eventually we'll be getting for the COVID. I don't necessarily want to take the first one. I want to take the best one. And so I, I it's okay. I don't mind... I don't mind waiting. And it looks like we'll probably have to wait till the spring. But, hey, good, uh, at least optimistic news that we could be seeing a vaccine. And then hopefully we can get everybody or a um, lot of people vaccinated and and feeling better and not having to worry about this thing by the fall of next year. And maybe we can start getting back to uh, the more normalcy and uh, it'll be more people hitting the roads. And it should be uh, it should be all all pointing upward. I I only hope, right? All right. If you want to reach the show again, 303-832-0217 is the phone number. You could always send me an email, drivingcrazypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Looper, the traffic guy. Be safe and as always, happy motoring.